Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today's Tuesday, May 17th. I'm Robert Mays. Fun show for you guys today. Joining me from the ringer, friend of the podcast, Benjamin Solak. Ben, how you doing, buddy? I'm well, Robert. How you been, man? I'm doing great. It's May. It's beautiful in Chicago. I was telling you, I went for a run this morning, which I haven't done in a very long time. I, I'm going to Mexico next week, and I wanted to make sure that if I needed to work out in Mexico, I could go for like a four-mile run and my body wouldn't fall apart. I give a break in case of emergency exercise, and I did it, and I'm very proud of myself. And it was like 65 degrees, and I love this time of year because our AC was broken last week, and we did not have any sort of coolness. I can't so, imagine. It's, it's been an eventful week. I'm I'm starting to get to that point for me where I've got to make sure my body can do things. Like I I did a four hour drive this weekend without stretching beforehand, and when I got out of the car. I was like, oh man, oh this yeah, ain't, this ain't like it used to be. I uh, enjoy the, that. Just wait until you're ten years older. I and uh, I have not been nice to myself, so everything is an adventure. But we'll see how I feel tomorrow. But in the meantime, I, I'm doing okay. All right, we're gonna do a mailbag today. We're gonna do a mailbag every week of the off season here for the next I don't know dozen weeks or so before we get to training camp. The reason we do them and the reason that I am so comfortable leaning on them is because your guys' questions are awesome. You do a great job. They're thoughtful. They're interesting. Things that really get my gears turning. Uh, This was no exception. We got a lot of really, really good ones. So sincerely appreciate everyone who took the time and spent the effort to send one in because they were excellent. And I'm, again, sincerely appreciative. Let's start with Daniel Lacey. Daniel says, hey, Robert and Ben, love the show. Keep up the good work. We've seen several big name free agents signings over the last week or so. Tyron Matthew and Jarvis Landry to the Saints, Melvin Ingram to the Dolphins, Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison to the Texans. I'm not sure Mario Addison counts or the Texans. If it's in the Texans, it's not a big name free agent signing. It's a rule. Jerry Hughes. I was like, oh, cool. Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison. I was like, okay, well, that's just the other guy who was playing next to Jerry Hughes. I I appreciate Daniel throwing it in there. Some guys who are still available. James Bradbury, Jadevian Clowney, Will Fuller, Dwayne Brown, Julio Jones, JC Treader, Anthony Barr, some names. Odell Beckham. Two questions here. Is there always this amount of high-level talent available after the draft? Or am I blanking on this? Some of these guys are available due to injury issues or age, but these are certainly guys who could at least start or contribute on plenty of teams? And what are some of the best fits for some of these guys? It's interesting. I was talking to a head coach last week, and he asked me this question. It's like, does it seem like there are more dudes who could contribute that are available on May 15th than there usually are? I think the answer to that is kind of yes. Yeah. So last year, if you look at guys who are available right before the draft, some of the top names, Richard Sherman, Mitchell Schwartz, who didn't end up playing last year, Richard Sherman, who barely played last year, Antonio Brown, Russell Okung, Alejandro Villanueva. I mean, there, there weren't really that many guys. Melvin Ingram, you know, one of those guys that was also available at this time last year. But it does feel like, at least in my opinion, Ben, that there are more guys who can contribute that are still kind of bouncing around out there right now. Yeah, Greg Rosenthal uh, does the like the free agent list for NFL. Yeah, uh, com, and he he kind of did the same thing in early May. He like sent out a tweet where he was like, "Oh, these are all these names. Like it's pretty crazy." 
And I, I was laughing, reflecting on it because every year in May, we write the here are the seven free agents. Like it's still impact for a team because you got to make content in May. But this year it's like, <laughs> hey, here are seven free agents who could actually have like the, the, the article has a little bit more uh, earnestness to it. Uh, I think that as just player mobility goes up in the league, you kind of see a, a middle class of players that becomes more comfortable or at least more regular as just kind of uh transient right they're just kind of like mercenaries who float around and i think that that'll be something that you know it development's never linear but kind of generally goes off over time and this is a year where you look at the list and you're like yeah like these guys can get somewhere and they can matter and that's pretty cool in terms of a a new kind of layer new kind of timeline for nfl free agency yeah i think that there are this is a, it applies to a lot of stuff and we're gonna get to it in a second in a somewhat different category but i think that as the younger coaches have kind of come into the league, as younger executives have come into the league, there's more of an openness to, we'll sign this guy and have him be ready in two weeks. Like, we don't give a shit. It doesn't really matter at this point. Look at what the Rams did with some of those guys they acquired mid-season. I think that is going to become more prevalent. If that becomes more prevalent, do we see guys that are just saying, all right, I'll sign somewhere in August, you know, after camp is mostly over and starting to cool down a little bit in some places around the country and I don't have to do this to my body. So I think that's definitely a consideration. I mean, James Bradbury, is the type of player and a level of player that is very rarely available at this stage of the yes. calendar. So, I mean, the, the couple guys that jump out to me, is there anybody that you're particularly interested with their landing spot? Uh, JC Treader is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. I think that when, when Rodney Hudson was traded to the Cardinals, I remember you guys talking about this, you and Nate, but a lot of people being like, man, just getting a good veteran center helps. It just helps. It helps a young quarterback. Yeah. It helps a young play caller. It helps young offensive linemen. It's just awesome. And then you have Treader. Who's not just like a veteran center? It's really good. It's good, good football player. Treader is not bad. He was banged up last season. Uh, he struggled to, to practice when he was on the field. He was good, and so I was surprised to see Treader hit free agency and last as long as he did. And now you look at places where there is youth on the interior. There's uncertainty along the offensive line. Uh, I wrote down the Bears. Like the Bears, like. They're, like their center situation, the Bears' offensive line situation is bad across the board. I think that five out of five spots could be improved upon. Do they need center more than he tackled? No, but like Treader is a is a, a uh, what's what's Nate's word? Force multiplier, right? Like he's just gonna he's gonna uh, rising tide that lifts all boats. Wrote the Cowboys down for Treader. Uh, bring you know they they lost their guard in Connor Williams. Tyler Biotis is fine, but again, I think you can get better play out of Treader right now, and he's gonna help Tyler Smith if he has to play next to him at guard. Like there are multiple teams where Treader goes where I think he hel- he helps the team immediately and he also helps young players develop. And that to me is a an interesting thing for him. He and Anthony Barr are the two where I'm like, all right, guy's definitely not what he was, but he's still good, A. And B, he helps a lot of people around him as well. So those are the two that, that stand out to me a lot. I'm fascinated where Bradbury goes. I just think that if you can get... Oh, Bradbury is an eagle. I already know. Don't worry about it. Fine. So that's Philadelphia Eagle, James Bradbury, baby. I asked an NFL general manager this morning. So where do you think Bradbury goes? And that was his response. So if if you're looking for some writing on the wall there, uh, feeling good about it, James Bradbury might be the answer. I wonder where Clowney goes. I mean, you used the word mercenary before. I think he and Capital in kind of embodies that more than anybody. You kind of bouncing around one of your contracts from Houston, man. Just show (laughs) up, produce, leave. Here we go, baby. The Browns still have $27 million in salary cap space right now. And that's not even a fake number because they have no draft picks that yeah. they have to worry about signing. That's a big number. And I think that the door is open for Clowney to come back there based on some of the string that I've gathered. I, that would make sense for them. Where will Fuller goals? I mean, there, there are some teams that, speaking of the Chicago Bears, that just need a human body to play wide receiver. And his body is 
talking about mine falling apart earlier on the show. His is in the same place. It, it'd be a risky bet. Baltimore, I, I don't know if that makes sense. They have $99,000 in effective cap space right now because they had 17 first round picks. Baltimore's the Odell spot. So that, but I'm wondering if, do they free up some money? Do they think they right. need to go get somebody five years ago? It would have been way more fun if Julio Jones was on the Ravens. Now it's not as enjoyable to me, but yeah. Baltimore and receiver just, it feels like there's a natural pairing there, but Bradbury to the Eagles, I think is a good one. So Daniel asked a question, a bonus question that I want to talk about really quickly because we did not do a show at the end of last week because my AC was out. So we didn't do talk about the schedule. We didn't talk about the release videos, which I do want to dig into. He said, is there ever going to be a schedule release video as great as what the Chargers did? I am fascinated by this. I don't think, I don't know if you care about this, not what the actual content is. Like some of it is funny and some of it is really cringy and kind of is all across the board. The idea that NFL social media teams and digital media arms are allowed to do this now to me is such an indication of where the league has gone from where it used to be. Could you imagine when this was, the no fun league, everything was buttoned up. Teams did everything they could to control the messaging in and out of the building. And now you have the Chargers making Mina Kimes jokes on their in their schedule release video and like doing things like the Deshaun Browns thing that I think is I was shocked when yeah. I saw that. They got the Jaguar dressed up like Urban Meyer. It, it, exactly. Man. I just it was it is so interesting to me that we have we've gotten to this place where teams are more comfortable being a little bit more voicey. And I talked about how as younger coaches kind of filter in and out, are we going to have teams that are more willing to take on players quickly to incorporate players quickly to take these risks. And I do feel like this is another area where a little bit more youth and energy injected into these buildings. I mean, if the head coach doesn't want that stuff to be out there, that it probably wouldn't exactly. be out there. Yeah. And the GMs are the same way. So I don't know how you feel about it, but I just, that's the takeaway I had to the overall reaction and just the, whatever the the overall how people were feeding off of that schedule release stuff is just that i'm shocked we've gotten to this place with the league the thing that i like about it the most is that like if you follow the nba you know like nba twitter accounts like team twitter accounts they've been like spicy for a while but theirs was a much more like gradual rise over the course of the calendar yes like a random like you know game and you know halfway through the season the grizzlies are just like tweeting at the trailblazers for no reason right just like you know getting messy it's a good time the NFL still like 364 days in the year, relatively bland, relatively beige. And then on schedule days, it's like the purge, man. <laughs> you, you, you can do whatever you want, apparently. Anything goes. Yeah, there's just nothing. There's no, <sighs> no rules today. No, you're never going to be counted on against whatever. Right. I do think it is uh, reflective of younger coaches. It's reflective of younger general managers. And I do think it matters a little bit in the sense of like, particularly for the Chargers, like Staley has talked about, like, we want to be like, you know, fun on social. Like he has yeah. said things about like, we want to be like an active team, like in, in, in the world with the, the, the ways that our players interact with one another. And I don't think a key free agent is going to sign with the Chargers over the Patriots because they have a cool schedule release video in 2022. But I do think they see it. I do think they quote tweet it. I do think they share it and that that matters to them. That's their social sphere. And, it's and if you're fun. fighting for a fan base, if you're yeah. trying to like get in with certain people and you want to expand your reach, I mean, I can understand it as a strategy. It still is just yeah. kind of surprising to me to watch it unfold in real time. Right. We owe all of this to the whatever social intern was running Wendy's Twitter account nine years ago. We owe all of this to him. <laughs> he just decided that this would be a wild, wild west of brands. And now we get, yes, the Urban Meyer jokes from the uh, the Chargers. And by the way, I know that I know the Chargers video guy. Uh, I met him a couple of years ago and I hit him up and I was like, hey, 
congrats. I was sick. He's like, dude, I'm sick. I'm worried I'm going to get fired every single day. He's like, somebody didn't know and they didn't get the jokes and I'm going to die. Um, so shout out to the Chargers video team. It was hilarious. Very well done. Quick note before we move on to our next question here. Uh, this is the first show that I've done back in my home office in a little while. And my microphone was not plugged in for the first question that we just answered. Professional so, podcaster, Robert Mays. Uh, listen, baby, I've only done this for 10 years. So... <laughs> Microphone was not plugged in, so now the microphone is plugged in. So that is the little difference that you're hearing in the audio quality that is coming into your ears right now. Next question from Ryan Habib. I love this. There are two types of questions that I really like right off the bat. One where I instantly know what my answer would be and one where I have no idea what my answer is going to be. This is the latter for sure. He said, this offseason, three teams were facing perhaps the worst roster situation you can have. They had aging, expensive, middle-of-the-road rosters and uncertain quarterback situations. But they also had front offices and coaching staffs with the job security to choose whether to push forward with the current team or press the reset button. New Orleans chose to go all in. Tennessee took a step backwards towards rebooting. And Pittsburgh chose somewhere in between. Which one of these three teams is now in the best situation and which one is in the worst? I'm fascinated by what your answer to this is going to be. Because I think you could go a bunch of different directions here. Yes. I'm officially done on the Saints. The worst situation. I've refused to entertain this or endorse this any longer. Once you've got multiple years of void on James Hurst, I'm out. You've gone, you've crossed the Rubicon. I'm done. Uh, The Saints position in terms of their cap health and in terms of their, their timeline for competing in the NFC could have been tenable this season when Brady was going to stay retired And like the NFC is clearly still lagging behind the AFC and they were going to let, you know, like, oh, Marcus Williams is going to be able to leave. Toronto Armstead's going to be able to leave. We're going to get Jamison here. We're going to kind of take a pause, catch up on some stuff. And then we're going to, you know, start firing some bullets. And then they started trading future first round picks and signing Toronto Matthew to eight figure deals. And they got Jarvis Landry up in this building. Like there is no situation that Mickey Loomis looks at and doesn't go. I mean, we could probably win 12 games this year, win the NFC South, go to the playoffs. And they don't even like, I don't know if it's because they don't have the Super Bowl or it's in, in like flying defiance of the fact they never made the Super Bowl. I don't know. Like that's got to well, go. They didn't win somehow. a Super Bowl. Yes. Or but, but, in the last like five years, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like in that, in that time frame. In this stretch where they have had right. since the 2017 draft, where you can make an argument that they were in the conversation of having the best roster in the league for yeah. several different years and yeah. they never won one. And I swear to goodness, if like the potential of 43 year old Drew Brees coming back is also encouraging this, that is unacceptable. Um, so I think the Saints are in the worst situation just because they continue to dig themselves deeper into the hole. And I kind of get it. Like if you're there, you might as well be there. Um, but I, I don't think they, st- they stack up relative to the Titans and the Steelers. So they're my worst. My best is is the Titans, who I was just impressed with the honesty that they had, right? Uh, They have made the playoffs in each of the last three seasons, all of which have been their first three seasons with Tannehill, right? uh, They've won two playoff games in that time. It would be very easy for this team, coming off the number one seed in the AFC, to say to themselves, we are like the Chiefs. We are like the Bills. We are contending in this conference. Let's go. And they kind of did that last season, right? Big Bud Dupree money, Julio Jones contract, whatever. They Pushing yeah. Tannehill's money further into the future in order to right. make the Julio Jones thing happen. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of win now moves. And so they looked honestly at their roster and some of their ages and, and some of the way they performed in the playoffs. And they clearly said, we're not going to push this any further. We're not going to Mickey Loomis this. We're going to sit with, with what we got here. We have Tannehill for another two years. We have Derrick Henry for another two years. We have Taylor Lewan for another two years. Like, that's the contracts that they have right now. And then obviously AJ Brown wanted to have, you know, 25 million over four years and they move on from Brown and then they get potentially the Tannehill replacement in 
uh, Malik Willis. They get potentially the Lawan placement and, and Nicholas Petit Frere. They get potentially the Derrick Henry replacement and Hassan Haskins all in this past draft. And those guys still have the ability to contribute now. Haskins could be helpful to take some load off of Derrick Henry. Petit Frere can challenge for that right tackle job. So it's not like it's completely rebuilding stuff, but they, I think, very clearly and very intentionally said, we're not going to push anything more into hitting this window. If Tanhill's the guy that we paid this money to, if Henry is that guy, if Luan is that guy, if our defense, Jeffrey Simmons, Nico Autry, all of these dudes, they expire after the 2023 season. If they're the guys we thought they were, they'll give us a playoff push. And if not, we're going to leave our door open uh, to, to, to get out here and, and get a little bit younger and preserve the future of Titans football. So I think they're in the best spot. I probably agree with that. If you look at also just ages of the roster, the, the Titans last season were 21st in snap weighted age on defense. The Saints were third, and the same Malcolm Jenkins is part of that. But you still have 34 year old Demario Davis, you have 34 year old Cam Jordan. There are some nice young pieces on the Saints, but I do think the Titans, especially on that side of the ball, are set up for the future in a pretty good way. And they've gotten much younger on offense. Julio is gone, Roger Saffold is gone. This is like a soft reset for them. Yeah. So I, I would probably say they're in the best position moving forward, but it's really hard for me to say that the Saints are in the worst position for a couple reasons. One, they have the best team right now. Of these three teams, the Saints are the best team. They are. Yeah. They absolutely are. They, they are, are the best team. But how, 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 I don't know if it's like that emphatic. I don't know if I like feel I def- great about I, it. <laughs> I think the Saints are, a, are a, definitely a significant step above where the Steelers and the Titans are at this exact moment. I definitely do. Okay. I'm not all I'm worried about the penning part of this. I do think the calculation they made about we're two pieces away from competing in the NFC is dead wrong. Mm-hmm. But I do think that Jameis Winston right now is going to make four million bucks this year. Good deal. If we're looking at the landscape of the quarterback position and what players are making in the NFL, that is not a lot of money. And I think next year it's like 15 with 11 million dollars in dead money. Eventually, you would think you keep saying, ah, well, you know, they can just move on from him. They'll eat the 11 million. You'd think that would catch up with them. If you have ownership that is willing to do this every single year, you're operating from a different set of circumstances. Your footing is different. Right now, the only team that is spending more cash than the New Orleans Saints in 2022 is the Browns. And they gave Deshaun Watson that contract. If your team is willing to spend like this, you can outrun some of these financial problems. The draft capital is a different conversation. But I do think that just saying eventually this is going to catch up with them, sometimes it's not. If the cap continues to grow, they're going to be able to outrun some of this shit. So it's hard for me to say they're in the worst spot. I don't really know what the Steelers are. Yeah, Steelers are are impossible to, to get a thumb on. I have a very difficult time figuring it out. Somebody laid this out for me. And I think that it was comparing Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett. And if you're going to pick a quarterback from this class, that you just need somebody where you can win a couple football games right now, Kenny Pickett would be your answer. Is the rest of the Steelers roster set up to do that? That's the thing that's so frustrating about it. It's like, I am ready to win now. Are you? Really? Let's name some Steelers offensive linemen and see if we're really ready to win now. It's the offensive line is exactly where I would start. And, you know, they've done a decent job. I think that a guy going to get Levi Wallace is like your second corner. Like they've patched areas of the defense in ways that make sense, even if I don't think this defense is as good as it's been over the last three or four years when healthy. So they're they're in a pretty nebulous spot. But I tend to agree with you, the Titans. I think that the way that they had that. All right. Here's some self-awareness. This is where we are. This is where we need to be. Here is an off ramp 
from this version of the roster that we've built over the last couple of years, I think that they've given that to themselves. And if the Malik Willis thing somehow works out, it's they've struck gold in a very big way. But even if it doesn't, he was a third round pick. Who gives a shit? We have a young defense. We have a GM and a head coach that's going to be here for a while. Let's see what our pivot point is in the spring of 2023 if we want to move on from yeah. Ryan Tannehill. And I think giving themselves that flexibility does put them, in my mind, in the best possible situation. But I also think these corners that the Saints always seem to paint themselves into, they can get out of them because they're willing to do things that other teams just aren't willing to do. Uh, so I and I do agree with that. I think that like obviously it's fun to make the jokes about the Saints cap, but in all earnestness, like they're going like as you say, the cap escalates every year, and so these pro- these problems, even as they create more of them, don't look as severe next season and the season following. The thing that I keep boiling coming back to with the Saints is I personally attributed a lot of their I can get out of this ability to Sean Payton being a very good head coach. I think that's a good answer. And here's the thing about it. He's not there anymore. It's Dennis Allen. And I love that Dennis Allen got that job. I think he did a great job at the Saints defense for multiple years. I think he deserves a second crack at being a head coach. I just, something's got to give here. Either I was, I was mistaken in my understanding of Sean Payton's values to the Saints, and they can just kind of plug and chug with Dennis Allen and still get away with a lot of this, which I don't think is the case. Or 1.5 game advantage that Sean Payton gave them. Like, I don't know how to calculate how many games a, head coaches worth over a season, but those couple of games that Sean Payton gave them over lesser head coaches, that advantage vanishes. Now, instead of being 10 and seven, you're eight and nine. And I, there's gotta be a line somewhere where this, like we're the biggest spenders starts to feel a little silly in in terms of, of the actual record that you're pushing out. You know what I mean? So that's the thing that, that worries me is that breeze is gone and Payton is gone. And the cornerstones on which this process was built are now different. And I'm not sure where exactly that, that makes me land on the same. All that is totally fair. I, I think mm-hmm. that they're pushing that line wherever it exists. But I do think, again, at least they have a plan this year where yeah. the Steelers, I don't know what the plan is. And I'm not criticizing what the Steelers have done. I think they were in a really awkward spot where they were just kind of in this middle ground over the last several seasons and you know, they're moving on from their general manager. It's going to be an awkward transition. But I do think the Saints, even if the wheels are going to fall off a year from now, I think they're too good for me to say they're in the worst position right now compared to these other two teams. That right. defense is good. Yeah, I hear you. All right. Yeah, they're good. The defense is really good. Here's they have the a lot of really good players on the Saints. They flipped two safeties. And this this defense, Marcus Williams and Malcolm Jenkins, mattered a lot. And if Marcus May and Tron Matthew, that's the fulcrum there for that defense. Because I think May is like a fine player. And I think Matthew was, at times, a little bit too chill in Kansas City. So if May is solid and Matthew kind of gets back on his horse a little bit, I think this works. But I would be you worried about mentioned Daniel Sorensen. Oh, yeah. Sorensen as well, obviously. Yeah, forgot about the true fulcrum of all NFL defenses. So we were going to just answer this a little bit later, but I think it's a natural extension here. Dylan LeBeau reached out and said, what kind of compensation do you expect the Saints to receive when Sean Payton becomes the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys in 2023? I love that this is just a foregone conclusion at this point. I don't know what the compensation is going to be. I wanted to ask you what you think the compensation should be. What do you think is a reasonable price to pay for a Sean Payton-like head coach if you are a team like Dallas? So this is in the, in the situation here is that the Dallas, the Cowboys have to trade something to the Saints in order to yes. get the Sean Payton contract. First round pick. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, it, it, it starts there and it's probably more than that. But I think that, right, like I said, like I, I, I don't know how to figure out what a head coach is over a season in terms of like plus minus win loss. But if we're talking about a guy that swings multiple games, which I would argue Sean Payton 
just by not being one of like the six to eight head coaches in the league, whoever you're like, dude, how are you doing? How are you here right now? How did you get the keys to this kingdom? Just by not being one of those guys, he's worth multiple games. That to me makes him worth a first round pick. Now you're talking about, all right, uh, the, the thing that gives me pause if I'm the Cowboys is I don't know how long I have Sean Payton for. That's the thing that freaks me out, right? Is that Payton just like, you know, he was playing with the Saints for a long time. They were pushing money into future years. And then Breeze retired. He did one year of like Jameis plus some plus Trevor plus Ian freaking book. And he was like, all right, I'm out. I'm retiring. Right. And I would be concerned about putting too many of my eggs into that basket. But so to me, it starts at, it starts at a first round pick. And I'd be comfortable trading away like my like projected top 16 pick right from a bad team making a change of head coach in order to get Sean Payton in the building. I don't think they're going to be that bad. I think they'll, even if they're disappointing, they'll probably be around 500, right? Right. Well, so, right. This is the Cowboys, like, what, going like 10 and seven, maybe making the playoffs and then moving on from a yeah. yeah. And if they fizzle out early in the playoffs, I would not be surprised. They're like, this is, this is run its course. Mm-hmm. What are we doing here with Mike McCarthy? I would give up, I think, two first round picks for Sean Payton and not ever think twice about it okay. ever again. I mean, how many people, just people, like you said, would swing multiple games in a season? It's quarterbacks and coaches. And there aren't that many elite quarterbacks that you can trade for. Mm-hmm. There is an elite coach you can potentially trade for next offseason if he wants to come back. And I think the value of somebody like that is higher than it seems at first glance. And that's why two first-round picks seems like a lot. Gruden went for two firsts and two seconds. When the Raiders traded him to the Bucs. That was 20 years ago. I don't think the influence, especially of an offensive-minded coach, especially one with Sean Payton's track record, especially one who's done such a good job of shaping the roster, like the way that he did in New Orleans, I I think that two is not that big of a price to pay for somebody like him. I would do it immediately. So it's basically the question of who matters more to your team winning games, Sean Payton or like Tyreek Hill slash Devontae Adams, because those trades were like first-plus changes, right? And for you, it's Peyton over those guys. And you don't have to pay. Right. You don't have to worry about the cap. Sean as Payton well. from the cap. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's I a huge, absolutely. That's a huge, yeah. That, not having to pay him from the cap is a big deal. Right. So you're trading for somebody not even on a rookie contract, somebody that's not on an applicable contract at all. So you're functionally like when you trade first round picks for a coach, you're functionally creating cap space because you otherwise would be paying those first round picks. You, know, you, ex- you could see it that way. I think right. that that's the way a very cheap team would see it, yeah. but you well, can't I, see I, it I'm, that I'm putting way. my nerd hat on right now, and I'm like, how can we just save money against the cap? But that's functionally what you end up doing, because you end up trading picks that would be paid under the cap to then pay a guy who's not under the cap, which is now a really interesting part of this as well. That's, I mean, let's say it's middle of a first round pick. What's the mid? What's the seventeenth pick? I just, I just did a, a Kyle Hamilton piece, and he's making like four million a year. So yeah, four yeah. million was my guess. Yeah, yeah. So uh, say so you say four million dollars against the cap. So it's a four million dollar free agent in Sean Payton over Mike McCarthy. <laughs> sign me up, baby. That's where two I first no problem with that. I, I would do that. As long as you put quickly. it in Sean Payton's contract that he can't fake punt and then spike and then do whatever the fuck he tried to do against the Niners. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. That's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokers Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. All right. Next one here. Andrew Lee says, I live in Germany. Big fan of the show. You make my commute much more enjoyable. I appreciate that. Since choosing to follow the Detroit Lions 35 years ago, a strange choice for someone in Europe, admittedly, but I've always rooted for the what underdog. What were the Lions doing 35 years ago? It's a great question. It's a great question. That was when I was born, so I don't, they weren't doing great. Yeah. It was like Robert Porsche and Barry Sanders and all of those guys on those teams. Leroy Glover. I've experienced many false dawns as, as it relates to the Lions. I keep reading the Lions are expected to contend in 2023. There seems to be a lot of optimism in the NFL media regarding the job that Brad Holmes is doing. I notice I'm getting excited. It's a strange feeling. So here's my question. Why should this be any different? Should I genuinely raise my hopes for the coming years with the potential pain this may entail? Uh, so, What do you think of where the Lions are at right now? Yeah, I very much like where the Lions are at, but I very much don't like how excited we're all getting. That feels like very much tempting fate, right? <laughs> I wrote a piece at the end of last season. Um, it was after, I want to say, like, uh, maybe it was the Cardinals game. I can't recall. They had, like, three or four games against, like, good teams, playoff teams. They were close late. They were hanging around, right? They are the Ravens game. They were kind of around the, the Rams game for a little bit, and the Rams pulled away late, but it was closer than it looked. Like, they were just hanging around. And I wrote a piece at the end of the season where I was like, I'm 
I'm buying this. Like I'm, I'm in on how competitive this coaching staff, which is a really cool coaching staff. They just got like Mark Brunel and Antoine Randall L and, and, and Kelvin Shepard. There's a bunch of guys who were playing like recently. It's such a player oriented coaching staff. A hundred percent. Even their defensive staff. I mean, guys that I think I've, I always wanted or to see get bigger, bigger opportunities. Glenn, Aaron Glenn being the defensive Pleasant, coordinator, yeah. Aubrey Pleasant getting to be their passing game coordinator when he was the secondary coach with the Rams, all guys. It's like, I wonder what that would guy would do with a slightly bigger job and slightly more responsibilities. That's the experiment that the lions played out with their coaching staff. Yeah. And, and you saw it. Every single dude, like when they had to play their seventh corner because they were dealing with injuries, and they had to play their fifth running back, who Godwin Igweki was a safety Northwestern. You guys were playing tough. Like it, it, this looked like a good proving ground, a good bed for a rebuild to be built on, right? Because it was clear the 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 young guys knew that if they fought for playing time, they would get playing time if they played well, and that's critical. So the Lions, I think, had a good bedrock in year one. I think that they did a good, solid job in the draft. I think generally they like their offseason. I think that the the improvements at wide receiver and getting multiple bodies is very nice. I think that Aiden Hutchinson is going to be a solid player for them moving on from Trey Flowers. I think all that's good. They still don't have a quarterback. They have Jared Goff, who is a perfectly cromulent bridge, but is not what you would call like a franchise quarterback. We have we have stepped beyond that classification for Jared Goff. And so accordingly, I'm so interested in just the idea of what they have done with Jared Goff as part of this rebuilding process. Yeah. We just talked about Jameis Winston's making four million bucks this year for the Saints. Do you know how much Jared Goff is making from the Lions? More than four million bucks. It's thirty. <laughs> it is thirty million dollars. And I understand they got money to throw around and there's some there's a lot of value in trying to have a quarterback, a level of quarterback competency that allows the rest of your offense to function. What sort of premium are you willing to pay for that? Just how Jared Goff at $30 million fits into what the plan is for the Lions. I've never gotten a clear answer on it, mm-hmm. but looking at it right now, it's like, I, man, it's really hard to understand exactly how all of these pieces are supposed yeah. to fit together in this exact moment. The magic, like the mystery around these extremely highly paid McVay Shanahan quarterbacks, right? Garoppolo, Cousins, Tannehill, Goff is always so interesting because some guys clearly just kind of run run their course with their teammates, right? Like people get frustrated with Cousins. Baker Mayfield's one who people become really frustrated with. And some guys don't, Garoppolo and Goff. And it oftentimes boils down to like, all right, everybody in the locker room knows you're probably overpaid for what you're bringing to the table. But are you likable like are you cool are you chill are we fine with hanging out with you in the case of golf it's like yeah like you're mad at jared golf you're not like mad at jared golf like all right he's jared he's a cool guy whatever he's fine so since there's no quarterback to answer the question i you can't yet feel like it's different because they even had stafford for as long as they did and they couldn't get up out of the muck right so because there's not yet a clear franchise quarterback right now it's just good vibes it's good rumblings it's good work right it's when you have a new hobby and you're like buying stuff off of amazon and you're getting reading books and you're getting excited about it but you haven't actually put pen to paper or put you know whatever fishing line in the water whatever the hobby is you haven't actually gone out and executed yet that's when the rubber meets the road and that hasn't come yet so right now it's just the lions are looking nice i like the vibes and we're just going to leave it there for now we're not going to talk about contending in 2023 that's too far how they get the quarterback is ultimately going to be the biggest question of this. Mm-hmm. They can move on from golf next year is $10 million in dead money after this season. There are a couple other logical moves that they can make. Michael Brockers, Vitae would save them. I think a combined like $18 million. That Vitae contract, man. There was a lot good they did. That Vitae contract was weird. But they're trying to figure out the kind of the last 
echoes of that previous regime and some of the contracts they handed mm-hmm. out. And I think that by the time next year starts, you will have this version of the Lions in its purest form, where your biggest contracts are Aquara, you know, Akuda being a top three pick, the extension they gave out to Ragnow, all of that stuff. It's you've swapped out enough pieces of the old version that now you have the true version. It still is going to be a question of where the quarterback comes from. We know that they have two first round picks next year. A lot of teams <laughs> that could potentially need a quarterback have two first round picks next year. So it, let's say the Lions win six games this, Heck this yeah. year. Think, think that's reasonable? Yeah, I like that. I was thinking five. So, six. So th- let's it. say the Lions are six and 11 and they have the fifth pick in the draft. That to me is not a bad outcome. They played hard. They had some flashes. Jamison Williams, when he gets on the field, is like, all right, this is some real juice. I'm excited about this. The offensive pieces fit together the way that Amon Ross St. Brown compliments Jamison Williams and they have Hawkinson and the line is ready. To me, it's kind of a study in how you're rebuilding. We'll get to this in a second. They're trying to build the ship and just have the quarterback be the last piece that they need to drop into it. I think that's the idea of going to get Williams the way that they did. Chark will be off this roster next year, but just how they've constructed this thing and said, all right, we're going to wait on quarterback. We're going to pay a premium for the stopgap guy to just kind of keep us competitive, keep whatever vibes we want in the building going as we wade through this version of ourselves, and then we'll try to get the cheap quarterback as the last piece of this when we have $50 million in cap space potentially next year. And it's funny because I think a thing we're learning as as NFL movement, player movement increases, is that you need a hook. You need a selling point for free agents, right? The Rams attracting free agents has been a lot of like, hey, LA is pretty nice. You know what I mean? But you also have like Sean McVay. And then after you get Matt Stafford in the building, it becomes a little bit easier, right? The Bucks got Tom Brady and all of a sudden people want to come. You know what I mean? Like players want to have a reason to go to that place in free agency. The Lions had a problem. Which was as they were leaving this, you know, Schwartz era and leaving the Caldwell area and just continuing just to struggle. And the the allure of Matt Stafford as first overall pick waned. They really didn't have draws as a place that could attract free agents. Usually, you would need to get the quarterback so you could start pulling in those people. And I think that the Lions believe that they have the head coach such that they don't need the quarterback. I think players want to play for Dan Campbell. I think they're banking very heavily on players wanting to play for Dan Campbell. Because if, let's say they build the ship right, let's say it goes really, really well. Let's say that the the foundation is clearly set for a quarterback. You start asking yourself questions. All right, well, you can get a rookie. Maybe CJ Stroud's good. Maybe Bryce Young's good. But there are a lot of veteran quarterbacks are moving nowadays. And it would sure be nice if you could get a guy in here we know is going to be on our timeline. He's going to be able to, to, to play for us right now. Can you do that? Maybe. If Dan Campbell's Kyler really Murray all that. Yes, in a year. Exactly. And like the only way that works to me in terms of like Kyler's allure, like everything Kyler's been like in news cycles and like the, the multi-sports things, like Kyler is clearly a guy who, who's used to the spotlight and Detroit doesn't feel like that sort of a place. As a guy who lives in Michigan, Michiganders <laughs> don't think about the Detroit Lions, right? Does not have that allure. The only way that works is if Dan Campbell really is that guy. And they have that magnetic of a personality at head coach that people want to come play for him, which we get hard knocks this year. And hopefully we're going to see some of that in action because that that would be really, really special. And that's what they're hanging their hat on with Campbell. All right. Next question here. And I think this is kind of dovetails off what we were just talking about. George Wang says, Bears fan, I'm privy to lots of pain and patience. My question is regarding rebuilding. How long should a rebuild take? I know it heavily depends on if you have a quarterback or not, but how long should teams, especially new regimes, get the benefit of the doubt? What are the factors that play into that? A lot. Curious your thoughts here. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
we had a we had a cool piece. Uh, Kevin wrote it for us, uh, like leading up to the Super Bowl about how the Bengals had a two year rebuild. Right, the Bengals just went from we have the first overall pick to we take Joe Burrow at one, we take Jamar Chase at five. We're in the Super Bowl, and the kind of the the, the nut graph there was don't read into this. <laughs> don't think your NFL owners don't believe this is how it, it's going to work or it should work or that this is replicable. There's things to learn here, right? Like, all right, we have the star quarterback. Let's go nuts for a star receiver. Right? Let's draft the top five receiver. And I remember you, like your Nate podcast coming before about Jamar Chase pre-drafting. Like, all right, do you really, is Jamar Chase really, really, really that guy? Do you want to spend that fifth overall pick on him? Cause that's a big gamble. It's a big swing. And, and for the Bengals, it hit because they had that quarterback and they wanted to get that connection. And so there's things to learn from the Bengals. But in general, I think two years is too short of a timeline. To me, a rebuild, we have to tear it down before we start building it back up is at least three. That's years. the point. Yeah. And that's where you are right now with the Bears. Like as every Justin Fields fan in the world saw the Bears offseason, I was like, man, you just wanted, you just wanted linemen, receivers, nothing else. Like that's all you want for the guy who you hope to succeed. And you hope to develop this sophomore season is a critical time for a young quarterback. Like all you wanted was for them to just pour resources into Justin Fields getting better. But it's very clear that Ryan Poles, when he pitched for the job, when he got the job and now that he has the job and, and, and his, his philosophy on the job is. We have to tear stuff down first. We have to spend a year getting it down to the nuts and bolts, understanding who our new franchise cornerstones are, understanding who our developmental young guys are here in the building. Uh, that process takes games. It takes reps. It takes really stinky performances on Thursday night football that are embarrassing for everybody. But that rebuild, that that true total rebuild, not like we're talking about the soft reset with the Titans. To me, that's a three-year process because there has to be that first at least half a season, right? Think about the Dolphins going 0-9 and, and then finishing, or going 0-7 and, and finishing with like five wins or whatever it was. That first half of the season has to be, we are taking this thing down to the studs and we're checking the integrity of the building before we start trying to build on it. I think that's the right timeline. And I think it depends on a lot of different factors. The Bengals were in a unique situation where they didn't have to tear it down because it, it also, I think a lot of this depends on, is there a new front office or not? The Bengals had the same people in charge. The coaching staff was new. But the people running the Bengals, there wasn't a lot of dead money and roster reconfiguration that had to go on in Cincinnati. Right. Same thing with the Chargers. The Chargers didn't have to purge themselves of a previous version of who they were when they drafted Justin Herbert sixth overall. They were ready in one, two offseasons to be like, all right, we're spending. Let's, let's go here with this version of who we are. And the Bengals were like that. A lot of these teams that bring in new regimes, bring in new GMs, you have to spend a year tearing it yeah, down. That's, you the, have to spend that's the entire key point, year tearing right, it down. How long did you give your previous GM? Because if you yes. gave him a Ryan Pace leash, you just made your rebuild a lot longer. How long did you give him and how much flexibility did you give him when things were really problematic at the end? Yeah. Dave Gettleman is a great example here, right? The Giants are going to spend this year figuring it out and even next year. The Giants are an interesting case because they can move on from a lot of these contracts. The Giants could have just had... 90 million dollars in dead money this year yeah. they just didn't do that yeah, they're yeah. keeping a lot of the guys on the roster james bradbury is an exception and then next year they can move on from some of this but this is the teardown year for the giants so that's usually what the first year is going to look like the bears are in that position the falcons are in that position this year even though it's year two that was kind of a disjointed yeah. timeline the even falcons I misstepped in year one once they were past i can understand why they did it so if you I, if you listen to their reasoning for it 
they wanted to establish some baseline of we're going to be competitive here. This is who we're going to be. And if your ownership is okay with that, where you say we're going to take a step back in year two, I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. But you have to (laughs) get the go. You have to get the green light from, you know, we're going to win three games in year two. And if your guy in charge is fine with that, I think that's fine. But th- that first year, that's typically what you're doing. We-, we come back to this all the time. The Bills is the example for how to do this in the right way. The Bills tore it down. They took one on the chin with all of that dead money, and then they started building this. So I think that's a big part of it. Also, think about how few big swings a lot of these teams in year one of their regime are w- typically willing to take. The Bills are another really good example. Mm-hmm. 2017, Joe Shane and Sean McDermott get there. They have a top 10 pick. Patrick Mahomes went with that pick. They traded out of it. A lot of these GMs, you talk to them about their first few months on the job, and they don't have time when they get hired in January to understand exactly what needs to happen and to make these monster moves by April. It's just not enough time. Mm -hmm. So you need that first year to kind of settle in a little bit and get your bearings and either tear it down or start reconfiguring things. Then in year two, that's when, all right, things are a little bit more open. We can get our guy. We can start to build this thing. And then in year three, you'd hope that with that year of financial flexibility and your two years removed from all of the bullshit, maybe we can start to be competitive. And that is where we just talked about the Lions. That's hopefully where they're going to be next year if they go get either their rookie because the Lions added pieces this year and are building the quarterback last. It also depends on when you get the quarterback. Do you want the quarterback and then to build around him, or do you want to build the foundation and then drop the quarterback in? So there's so many different things here that I think you have to take into mind, but I do think three years if you inherited a shitty situation is typically the answer. Uh, that point of like, it's really hard for a GM to immediately come in in February and January and then like absolutely set the stage for April is a good point. The, the, the thing that immediately came to mind is when the Jets let Mike McCagden do the 2019 draft and then fired him in May, right? Or it's like, all right, let's solve that problem. Let's give our first year GM a long time. And then you realize that means McCagnet's picking Ja'Kai Polite in the third round. You're like, ah, that also sucks a little bit. So you're right. You have to be willing to take one on the chin. You got to be willing to take a draft on the chin where like, you know, you just installed a new regime and it's not, you know, 100% all of our guardrails and our philosophies are established. It's a year on the chin of free agency with rebuilding. Like if you put your team in a bad spot by letting a, a bad general manager or a bad coach or even like an iffy one, like really try and like, you know, hold down their job. You got to understand as, as ownership, Right. There's going to be a year here where this sucks. And that's where, as a head coach and a GM candidate, interviewing your owner is just as important as your owner interviewing you. Because you got to know when you're taking over that bad team, that ownership isn't going to turn around in year three and say, hey, where are the results? When two years ago, you said there weren't going to be results at this time. You need to know that ownership is going to actually give you that leash. Like Minnesota is a good example. Mm hmm. He could have come in and like, we're trading Kirk. We're tearing this thing down. That's a lot to do in those first couple months. They could potentially move on from him after this year when they're getting a little bit younger and all of that. There's just so many things to take into consideration. And I, I think we forget. I was looking at the list of it today. Very few new regimes. So first year GMs take first round quarterbacks. The exceptions are often number one overall picks where what else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Like last year with Jacksonville. They're going to take Trevor Lawrence because they have the number one overall pick. But if there's any sort of gray area, Atlanta last year with Matt Ryan, with the first year GM, he's a couple months on the job. We're going to take a really good player. We'll figure out what this looks like over the next couple of years. That happens more often than you think it does. 
Yeah, I had um, I had a, a piece about Jones and Daniel Jones and Gettleman last year, right? We're coming into the season. It, it was Gettleman gave this quote to Peter King when he drafted Daniel Jones six overall in 2019, where he was like, talk to me in three years, see who's laughing then. And we were approaching three years. And it was like, <laughs> Dave, I got some news, buddy. That quote had a kernel of, of truth in it, which was the history of general managers who draft a round one quarterback. After three years, if that quarterback doesn't have a winning record, and it doesn't matter why, it could be 27 and 28, and there could be a ton of extenuating circumstances as to why that quarterback is a losing record. That general manager, unless his name was Rick Spielman, was fired at the or end Ryan of those. Pace. Yeah, right, Ryan Pace at the end of those three years. So, well, actually, no, but not not the case for Pace because Trubisky had a winning record. They went, they a winning went record. Eight, that's eight, true. Eight, that's whatever, true. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's true. So that's the thing is right. It if doesn't doing really, it by record. That's it doesn't true. matter what the quarterback's actually doing. Are you winning <laughs> games or not? Right. And so that truth of first year general managers not taking that early quarterback is indicative of that intuition of that subconscious understanding that hey once i do tick 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 hourglass turns tick, over tick, 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 there goes that clock right and, and you really want to feel like you've set the groundwork nicely once you turn that hourglass on for yourself all right kent let's get to our first voicemail here hi guys this is eric big fan of the pod just want to get your thoughts on drafting in the first round as it relates to positional values. Um, and I wanted to look at it through the perspective of the Ravens this year. I know everyone's given them high marks across the board, and generally they're a well-run, uh, well-drafting organization. But I haven't seen much criticism or pushback on the fact that they used first-round picks on a center and a safety. Now, part of the allure of the first-round pick is five years of um, relatively cheap labor. And just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on um, – the market inefficiencies perhaps of allocating those resources in the first round on a center and a safety. Um, even if both these players turn out to be top five at their positions, how much of a value is it really to have them locked up on these relatively cheap five-year contracts? Uh, and, and some other examples too of positional value that, that I'm curious about your thoughts on are a team like the Colts where they have three elite players, but they play at guard, running back, and off-ball linebacker and not these key positions. What do you think about this? Uh, we we yeah. talk about this a lot on this show. I, I don't think I've ever heard you articulate like how you, where you stand on this. Right. Well, I did. We did have a, a take purge episode for the Ring NFL Draft Show where I was just like, listen, positional values for the birds. I hate it. The nerds suck. I just draft <laughs> the cool players, man. I, I literally, I, I have a video coming out in a couple weeks about Kyle Hamilton to the Ravens. And I say the same exact thing that uh, I, I can't recall the name of the caller, but the same thing that he said a couple of times where it's, hey, the Ravens are trustworthy. If there's a team we're going to trust, they know what they're doing in the draft space. To me, the Baltimore Ravens, Eric DeCosta are right up there. And when they take Hamilton at 14, after paying Marcus Williams $70 million over five years, with a new defensive coordinator coming in from college who runs a ton of sim pressures, runs a ton of like two high, one high rotation stuff, I think they're telling us something. And I think that we are increasingly seeing smart teams, increasingly seeing top safeties get paid a lot and teams being willing to pay multiple safeties. Uh, as we move to this too high world, right? We've talked about this a bajillion times. Uh, that's going to be a reality where safeties just simply become a more important uh, spot. Over the last, I think it's from 2015 to 2020. So this is even before 2021 when like the Jamal Adams contract got done, the Harrison Smith contract got done. But from 2015 to 2020, the top contracts that grew the fastest positionally were quarterback, edge, offensive line, and then safety. 
the top of that market has been growing faster than, than wide receiver, than corner, right? And then like defensive tackle, whatever. And so this is a position where teams are beginning to understand that the top guys really matter, right? PFF war in 2019 had safeties as, as if you had a top 10 safety, it was the most valuable position besides quarterback and wide receiver to have that, that top 10 player in terms of wins above replacement for their metrics. So safety is a position for them where I think you, you see them with, with, with two really highly paid safeties in, in uh, Williams, Chuck Clark who's making more than Kyle Hamilton is. And then Hamilton as, as a top 15 pick, you see the, the Seahawks who are changing their defensive structure, right? They fired Ken Norton, they hired Sean Desai, they hired Carl Scott, and they got Jamal Adams and Quandre Diggs, who top 10 paid safeties. You see the bills they are living in a too high world. And they have Michael Hyde and Jordan Poyer, both of them are right fringe top 10 players in terms of safety APY. Safety is a position that I think we need to start understanding as of a higher premium. I think positional value is still real. I think we don't understand safety correctly in terms of how we, we experience it as, as, a, as, a, as a position of premium. And then at center, the Ravens have spent a, a pick in the first four rounds at offensive line since 2016. Every single year they do it. They took Ronnie Stanley at six. They took Ben Powers in the fourth round, and they've done everything in between. Get Orlando Brown into the building. Get Nico Siragusa into the building. We, they are constantly picking offensive linemen. Why should I care if it's a center instead of a guard, man? And why should I care if it's if it's at, at 21 instead of at like, you know, 100? Obviously, there's there is a spectrum here. But to me, if, if this team is going to be as run heavy as they are going to be, and they're going to continue to evolve that running game as well as they cycle through different running backs, as they find ways to protect Lamar, as they change the way they get into their pass distributions, so they don't have Marquise Brown anymore. If they need a safety who can run and get on the move, who can give them Jason Kelsey-like flexibility... To me, that's all the more power to them. I have no problem with with center positional value or safety positional value for a team that is in such a transitional spot right now as the Ravens are in terms of how they want to get on the field and what they want to do. So I think you just look at the tiers of of the draft itself. You look at the players that went even after the Ravens picked at 14. It's just a drop in the types of players that we're seeing. Kenyon Green was a 15th pick in the draft. Jahan Dotson went 16th. I mean, that's when it happened. That's when I think the types of players who were available changed where you have moments like four picks after the Ravens picked Cole Strange goes off the board to the Patriots that's borderline crazy compared to what we expected but I do think that there was a level of uncertainty when you got to the back half of the first round where the Ravens are probably sitting there thinking Tyler Linderbaum is the best player like even if yeah. there's slight con- concerns about positional value a lot of the guys that went right after him you're talking about Again, guards, multiple guards, multiple safeties, multiple off-ball linebackers, interior defensive linemen. And all of I mean, whom are like tier two players. So I, I I can totally understand that. And I'm I'm with you 100% on yeah. the safety thing. I think that they are going to live in that too high world and sprinkle in some of that Fangio Staley stuff. I'm very confident of that. So many teams want to embrace that. And I think our understanding of what safety value really is and some of those numbers that you laid out were really interesting. And that's not surprising. I think it should go that way. My only thing is where can you find those players that fit this version of defense? The idea that you don't have to be a great athlete. So can you find one of them in the third round? There's going to be a Justin Simmons, guys like that, Mm -hmm. Kevin Byard, who are maybe imperfect prospects you can find a little bit later. But if I told you they that drafted Kevin one Byard, of those guys last year, Brandon Stevens at SMU, who's a running back corner combo, who's playing safety for him right now. If I asked you if Justin Simmons was in this draft, where would you draft him? What would your answer be? If you knew the player was going to be Justin Simmons, yeah, like top top five, top ten without blinking, absolutely yes. 
And that's I think that's the idea about Kyle Hamilton is that he is that good of a safety prospect. And as we're going to this world where our team's going to be using more three safety looks, if your safety can get dropped down and play in the slot, where does that value start to shake out? I think there's so many different conversations and considerations as they apply to that position and the shifts that we've seen. Just because safety, even the way, what we think of as when we talk about exactly. safeties is different than it was five years ago because there used to be two kinds of safeties, right? When we lived in that Seattle world, you had safeties that played two distinct positions. Now you don't have that anymore. And I think because of that, their value has only increased. It just There's so many different layers to it as it, as it relates to safety specifically in this conversation. Yeah. And, and the final note I'll say on the Ravens specifically is that you can get away with bad quote unquote positional value maintenance when you have seven third round picks every freaking year. Right. And that's why the Ravens are just generally a trustworthy team, right? You go to 2020, they took a linebacker round one and a running back round two. This is heresy in the eyes of the nerds, right? You cannot do this, but then they took a defensive tackle wide receiver, another linebacker and a tackle with their four third round picks. So you can, you can go and get your guys a little bit and kind of throw positional value to the wind when you're going to have so many darts as they do every single, year with great intention they draft ahead they know their free agents that are going to leave they know they're going to get compacts for them they draft their replacements a year early they get rookies on the field they get them to develop and then they're sitting there with another seven picks around pick 100 and it's like all right we like tyler linderbaum yes we should be more responsible and like get another edge rusher but we'll take a david a job on round two we got all the picks in the world if you flipped linderbaum exactly is is this a different conversation? And I, that's and there were that kind of there was that grouping of pass rushers that were potentially going to go at the top half of the second round. There were some teams that viewed Ebikati as one step above all of that other tier with Boye Mafe and Ajabo being hurt and a couple of those other guys in that range. But if you were comfortable with that range, more comfortable than you were from the drop off in Tyler Linderbaum to Cam Jurgens. Does it make more sense to draft the interior offensive lineman at 25 and wait on the pass rusher, which is what it seemed like happened in Baltimore? Right. Now, with all of this said, they should have drafted a receiver. But other than that, love the draft. Great work. Keep it up, team. All right. Let's get to our next voicemail here. Hey, guys. This is Kendra calling from Canada. Love what you're doing at The Athletic, Robert. And I love what you're doing at The Ringer, Ben. But maybe consume a little bit more pop culture in your free time if you can. Shade ain't so. Um, I'm wondering if there's an underrated game that you guys are really excited about this year. So not something that's really big, like the Rams build opening night or dramatic, like Seahawks Broncos, but something that's just a really strong matchup given the teams, the home location, or even just the timing within the season. Thanks. How little pop culture do you consume? Okay. So this is a reference to, uh, we're on the, the, draft show and i don't remember what the two songs in question were but somebody referenced a song i think it's by weezer called say it ain't so oh my god you don't know say it ain't so by weezer well, and so here's the thing i then started singing what i believe to be say it ain't so by weezer which i thought went say it ain't so i will not go because that song starts oh, no. with say it ain't so in the chorus but it turns out those are two separate songs and now i will never be forgiven also like bill and sean everybody the ringer found out that i have not once seen any movies um, and they, they talked about me on the rewatchables like 10 minutes. And it was, what's the last movie you saw? I don't know. Probably like something on Amazon prime that I was like put on the background because I was bored. I like, you know, I'll rewatch like, you know, young adult fantasy movies that came out in 2010. Right. When I was a kid, like that's what I'll just like put those on in the background and like, that's it. Right. Like I've seen like 
every time I get sick, I watch Transformers. That's my scope. And I know that's horrible to you. You're like, oh my God. That's absolute, yes, gourmand of movies. But I just don't, just haven't seen all the fancy ones. And I don't know if I ever will. My dad made me watch so Pulp sad. Fiction when I was a kid. He was like, you got to do this. And then other than that, I got nothing. Songs are bad. I'm I'm bad with new music is tough for me. Like, I went to Coachella this year and there were bands pretty high up on the billing where I was like, I don't, I don't know what this is. I'm not going to say what they are because it's going to be embarrassing for me. But there are certain gaps. My fiance is four years younger than me. And there are certain gaps in my pop culture knowledge that she's just horrified by. Yeah. Like it, it explains that four year difference in our ages when there are things that are essentially born of the internet that there's like very internet centric musical acts that are like, this is just created by internet culture that I just do not understand. So I'm a little bit sympathetic to your cause here. Anyway, what is your answer to this question about which game you're looking forward to? Uh, so I, I, uh, the call here definitely like listen to the ringer show. And I talked about Tennessee versus Indianapolis uh, in week seven last year, the Colts and the Titans played both of their games in the first half of the season, the Colts lost both. And then that was huge for the Colts late because they needed yeah. to win in order to make the wild card round. And guess what the Colts did not do as Jim Ursay has so uh, excruciatingly detailed <laughs> over the last few weeks, they did not beat the Jaguars and they didn't make it. And so we have, again, uh, the Titans play the Colts in week four, uh, in Indianapolis. And then in week seven in Nashville, the Colts now have Matt Ryan. They're clearly pushing in on this window and the Titans, as we talked about, did a little bit of a soft reset. The Colts should win one, if not both of these games and should win the division. But Frank Reich's been giving away leads and they weren't handling business last year. And so those are really important games. I'm excited to see those games, but to give another one, I'm, I'm excited to watch the Cincinnati Baltimore rivalry. I think that when, when Lamar first, landed we had like all right Ravens Steelers and then there was a little bit of like Ravens Cleveland there in the middle when there was Baker hype and I think now we definitely know that the AFC North like obviously like Cleveland's got Deshaun and all that but I think like the the two exciting young quarterbacks in the AFC North are Lamar and Burrow and the Bengals really had the Ravens number last season even when the Ravens didn't have Lamar and they were they're dealing with injuries they were still beating some good teams they could not get around the Bengals um and so Cincinnati plays at Baltimore on Sunday night in week five and I think Lamar versus Burrow, assuming Lamar gets that contract done, which he very well should, I think that's the defining rivalry in the AFC North for the next two years. And I'm really excited to see how that starts to play out. There are some awesome games in the Bengals' schedule. I mean, they play yeah. the Cowboys in Week 2. They play the Bucks this year. They play the Bills in Week 17. Well, I mean, that's a fantastic game. So Week 17, the Bills play the Bengals on Monday night. Do you know what the Sunday night game is? No. Rams-Chargers in Week 17. Oh, this and this the schedule I'm looking at has yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy smokes. This is a, week six and seventeen is sick. That's week seventeen, Rams, Chargers, and then Bengals, Bills, back to back night games is fucking awesome. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, that is a so, really, that's, really, that's right really at the good turn of the new year, too. That's gonna be really fun. Rams, Chargers is like the random game where like, oh, they play in the same stadium and like even the colors and the aesthetics, yeah. like everything about that game is exciting to me. I also just some of those Broncos games. Like Broncos Chargers games now are interesting to me in a way they were not when Drew Locke was the quarterback yes. in Denver. The Rams play the Broncos, I believe, in week 16 this year. That's a really fun game. So just uh, the Broncos schedule suddenly becomes yeah. very, very different with Russell Wilson and that new coaching staff and just a lot of the other things going on there. Yeah, I know it, it was precluded from the answers, but the Russ back in Seattle in, in week one is, is to me the, the most exciting game because Seattle is the toughest place to be as an away as an away team, period. And then you're Russell Wilson coming back. You ever been there? No, I've never been there. You got to go. 
Yeah. I mean, that, that, it, it, that, and like also the Washington Huskies, like college stadium, like those stadiums up there are, are such big buckler stadiums for me. The idea of, of Russ contending with a Seattle away crowd for the first time, a Seattle opposing crowd for the first time is enormously interesting to me. I want the Broncos to win a game like 10 to seven, 10 to six so badly because we'll be able to ride narratives on that for months if we, if we get that sort of a game. <laughs> then there's some good Sunday night games. Again, I haven't talked about the schedule at all because we were going to talk about it last week mm-hmm. before we canceled the show. I mean, there are some really fun Sunday night games. Yep. The Chargers go to, to San Francisco. You talk about the Bengals and the Ravens in week five. The Niners and the Broncos play in week three. Right. There are some really good ones. And then that week 17 game with the Rams and the Chargers, I got that one circled. You know, you want to know my really favorite cool schedule game. game to play this year? Do you remember when Aikman was complaining at Fox last year about how he didn't get the Cowboys playoff game? Right. I certainly do. Yeah. So now he's a Monday Night Football. <laughs> and what week does Aikman get furious that he only gets Island games and he can't get the best Fox game every single week. I'm looking at like Patriots, uh, Patriots bears in week seven, right? That's probably like a little bit too early in the season, right? We start to get to like mm, Steelers Colts in week 12 could get ugly. Maybe there's going to be a Monday night game at some point between two bad teams or oh, Washington just... at the Eagles in week in week 10. Oh, go birds, baby. Oh yeah. There, there you go. Right. That's, that's the oh, running that favorite. Was, that could be for eight. Well, just... Wentz. I didn't even think about Wentz going back to Philly. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that'll, that'll be, that'll be a hoot and a holler. It's going to be a hostile Man, work environment. Really yeah. Looking I'm very to excited to just track Aikman enthusiasm meter across the course of the season. All right. Next one here. Tom asks, is too much made about winning during a quarterback's rookie contract window. The notion of wasting a quarterback's rookie contract is a prevalent talking point by analysts and fan bases alike. See the Justin Fields commentary. Since the introduction of slotted salaries in 2011, only two quarterbacks have won Super Bowls on rookie deals. Those two quarterbacks were Russell Wilson and Patrick Mahomes, both of whom are on track to be first ballot Hall of Famers. I understand and appreciate the benefit of trying to win while your quarterback is cheap, but it's talked about as seemingly the only way to build a super winning roster when historically it rarely happens. Josh Allen is on a second contract and no one is saying the bills wasted his rookie contract. I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I'm curious what you think. I don't think it's overblown. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I I'll put it to you this way. It is so hard to get a rookie quarterback to be good. It is so hard to draft a young quarterback and then to get him to be a clear contending yearly perennial MVP candidate, whatever you want to say, that is a hard business, man. Most teams swing at that that ball, make incidental contact, they foul it off, they miss it. It's very rare you get a clean strike. So when you do, what it allows you to do in terms of signing big free agent, what it allows you to do in terms of attracting coaches when you inevitably lose coaches, what it allows you to do in terms of developing your other young players on offense, it just makes the entire environment so much better such that, yes, you may not be winning a Super Bowl, in the quarterback's rookie window, but we need to say very strongly that a large part of why the Bills are as good as they are now is because of what Allen's rookie contract allowed them to do on the rest of the team. What it allows you to get away with at your wide receiver position. I talk about, you know, the, the Chiefs moving on from Tyreek Hill and then the, the, now you have the, the Packers moving on from Devontae Adams. It's a little bit different because Rodgers is old. But when you have that elite guy who you've gotten to that level, that's what really blossoms out your winning opportunities. But how do you get that guy? You have to draft him, you got to develop him, and then you have to have money under the cap to get the players around him that are necessary. And that is very hard to do without a rookie contract, right? Like when the Titans traded for Tannehill, when the Vikings got Cousins, it gave them like a boost, 
but that boost doesn't last as long because the money kicks in and it starts to put you up against the wall a little bit. So yes, you're not necessarily like winning as many championships on the rookie deal, but if you get a really good quarterback on a rookie deal, you are now a GM with the power. You are the one who can go make moves. You can go get aggressive. You have a long leash. You're not going to get fired. And that's how you build a contender. I think the idea of looking at the teams that win the Super Bowl as this North Star is misguided. Mm-hmm. The, the bounces of the ball necessary to win one is so specific. You have to cast a wider net than that. Once you Nick Foles the- won a Super Bowl, baby. And listen, as, a, as an Eagles fan, it's the best thing that ever happened. But once he did, you got to throw Super Bowl wins out the window. It doesn't count anymore. By the way, the reason that they were able to win that Super Bowl is they were paying Carson Wentz a bunch of pennies yep. and they could build the best roster in the league. So let's go through this. Okay, let's go through some of these guys who are highly drafted quarterbacks and what it's ultimately looked like. All right. The first quarterback drafted in the new CBA was Cam Newton. He went to the Super Bowl in his fifth year and lost to the Broncos. He was making 8.7% of the cap in 2015 on the last year of his rookie deal. That jumped to 12.3 the following year. The Panthers went to the Super Bowl and did not win. In the gap past that, Russell Wilson won the Super Bowl. Okay, Andrew Luck, the Colts were... You think the Colts were a well-constructed, well-built team in the early years of the Andrew Luck era? Right. I'd say fuck no. And they won a lot of football games, in part because they were paying Andrew Luck absolutely nothing. Yep. Okay. Then you have that weird gap in that 2013, 14, 15 range where there really no were no drafted quarterbacks. It was a dead era of first-round quarterbacks that teams were building around in general. 2013 was the EJ Manuel year. 2014, Teddy Bridgewater was the only first round quarterback. So that was like a dead oh, period. Blake Bortles erasure. That's a perfect example. <laughs> they, they that team almost went to the Super Bowl yes. because they were playing Blake Bortles nothing. Okay, the entire so defense long term quarterback. Massive right? contracts. So let's go to 2016. Jared Goff almost won a Super Bowl in part because of how little money he was making. The Rams went to the Super Bowl while Jared Goff was on a rookie contract. In year two of Carson Wentz's deal, the Eagles Eagles win a Super Bowl. Go Birds. Patrick Mahomes in 2017 wins a Super Bowl. The Deshaun Watson Texans, again, not well run, were going to the playoffs consistently, in part because of how much they were paying Deshaun Watson. Josh Allen, this idea that look at what the Bills have done, even though they extended Josh Allen. You know when Josh Allen's extension kicks in? Next year, right? Next year. Yeah. So Josh Allen is making $16 million this season. Twenty or That's 15th in cap it mm-hmm. among quarterbacks. All of the other years that we've watched the Josh Allen-led Bills, where we're thinking, man, the Bills have the best roster in the league. Josh Allen was on a rookie contract. Mm-hmm. So that it's a huge piece. The Cardinals. You know, the Cardinals are a well-run team. Oh, God, don't get the me The Cardinals started. are well put together. You'll not be able to get me off this podcast if you get me started talking about the Arizona Cardinals. Cardinals went to the playoffs last year. Kyler Murray on a rookie contract. The Chargers have the seventh best Super Bowl odds this season with Justin Herbert on a rookie contract. Joe Burrow was a quarter away from winning the Super Bowl last year with an offensive line that was in tatters, in part because the Bengals could wield the extra money that they had to completely rebuild their defense via free agency and it helped them get to the Super Bowl. Is it necessary? No, it's not necessary to win one. Does it make it a lot easier? If you can squeeze every single thing you can out of that four to five year window, yeah, it makes yeah. it a lot easier. Right. And so I just think this idea of let's look at the winner and then try to reverse engineer what that team looked like. That's also discounting the fact that for the most part over this 10 year period where we've had these rookie quarterback contracts, the Patriots have won half the fucking Super Bowl. Yes, right. You always have to also put yeah the Brady asterisk, right? Or excuse the numbers. But it's so right. It's it's okay. The the Rams win it with Goff. 
and freaking, you know, Burrow wins it last year over Stafford. Now it's four out of the last 10. You're telling me you want to take a 40% proposition? Oh, we get a quarterback on a rookie deal where we have a 40% chance of winning the Super Bowl? I'm down. That seems like the best number I'm going to get. You know what I mean? So, right, it, it's a couple bounces make the numbers look so different. I remember this with the Prescott extension, right? Where it was like, Cowboys are smart not to extend back Prescott because no quarterback that's ever made more than the median quarterback number. He's good, man. You need a good quarterback to make it. That's the whole conversation. Yeah, I, I, I really do think, again, it's you can do it without it. The degree of difficulty is so much higher. Yeah, it, it is such a cheat code to have it. And I do think you need to do everything you can to maximize that window. All right, next question here. This one's for you. Andrew Feeling says, I've always wanted to watch film to draw my own conclusions on prospects before the NFL draft instead of just parroting what I hear. As an amateur, I don't really know where to start with this. What do you watch on each player? Is it the same that NFL front offices do? I think like the standard highlight films only show the good stuff. There are certain barriers that I think are important to understand with access to film and what you're watching and all of that stuff. But I think people would be curious to hear about your process. Yeah, so I can't emphasize this enough. Uh, I do exactly what NFL general managers do and to the exact same degree of skill, you should hire me to be in your front office. When I started out, because I started out in draft coverage, that was the best proving ground because you get a little bit of, of college contact, you get a little bit of NFL content. So you're you're kind of straddling the line, you're, you're touching both places. And then as you evaluate a player, you inherently have to understand, you know, you have to go like down the funnel and understand techniques for specific plays and for specific contexts. And then you also have to go up the funnel and understand the scheme writ large and what he does within a, a larger piece of the puzzle. And so you're just going to become closer. You're going to become incidental to a lot of things that matter in football. Uh, for me, I was watching on YouTube because draft coverage exploded when we all realized like, oh, we can just like, we don't have to wait for the, the opinions of Mel Kuyper to know how we should feel about like the Steelers draft Ben Roethlisberger. He's a quarterback out of Miami of Ohio in 2004. Nobody in 2004 could watch Miami of Ohio play on demand. <laughs> Right. Once those games get on YouTube, now you can. All of a sudden, draft coverage becomes a huge thing because we can formulate our opinions on these guys. We can just watch them and go. So when you're somebody who wants to have a uh, a more educated and more uh, you know formal and kind of specific opinion, uh, you can start by just watching that YouTube film. You just consume a lot of it. You know, Ben Roethlisberger verse on on, on YouTube, right? Whatever, Kenny Pickett verse on YouTube, and you're just going to see him play, and you can start to understand. Oh, he doesn't move around in the pocket as much as these guys, the pocket passer. You can just get fundamental, basic ideas. So that's where I started. And then as you continue to go in that field, right? Like, you know, as I was like on Twitter and I was making connections with people, whatever, then you start to get into this extremely weird, hilariously self-impressed black market of college football 22. It's it's amazing. And NFL 22, where like you would think we're trading blood diamonds or something. I don't know. What's like the hottest commodity? Like it is unbelievable. The levels of security, the stuff goes through, but people have uh, cutups or they have, they have full films, right? Tulane offense against Tulsa defense that they got because the Tulane coaching staff gave it to a high school coach. That they know and the high school coach traded it for a playbook and kind of entered this literal black market of just like trading stuff for stuff. And then when you get that all 22 film, that film has, different angles in the broadcast film it has from the sideline it has from the end zone and this is what you really have to watch if you want to understand scheme because you're going to see all 22 players move in concert from two different angles from two different directions and when you're trying to understand like trench play and the techniques of offensive alignment you really need that end zone view in order to be able to see what they're doing not from the sideline where you kind of have to like infer where they are and what, what, what what's going on that's the majority of, of what i watch now i'll certainly put on like you know like uh eagles drafted you know uh 
fourth round, whatever safety. And I want to, you know, get a look at him that I just, I didn't watch him. I'll throw on YouTube cutups. I'll get a feel for what sort of player he is. He physical, is he big, is he fly? Like, you know, what, what, what's the look? But if I'm trying to understand a player, trying to write content, I'm going to be off of that all 22 film. College still remains a complete and total black market. College has no interest in formalizing this, which really sucks. The NFL wants to. It's called Game Pass. You may have heard us talk about it before. It was sent by the devil himself. Uh, it's a very poorly run service. I know that they're trying to improve it. I know that they have they have uh, designs on, on having a really dynamic interface and play search and whatever. And that's going to be amazing for NFL content. If and when it comes, which I would not be holding my breath for. Um, but that's going to be amazing for NFL content. It's going to become a lot faster for somebody like me and you to write an article or to research a player for a podcast. And the faster it becomes, the easier it is for us, the more we can do and the more educated we can be on that sort of stuff. And so if you want to like understand players better and you want access to like that sort of film, Game Pass will become available. Sure. But I would say right now, start a Twitter account, watch YouTube film, make some cutups of it and talk to people. Talk to other people who are doing that and talk to talk to journalists that you like and ask them questions about film when they post it, right? Follow Nate on Twitter. Just anytime Nate's posting anything, ask him a nice question. Nate loves to answer questions. And in doing so, you start to generate connections that'll give you access to more film. I think that's the the access to the film is one of the biggest barriers. It, you, eventually, you're going to run up into stuff because yeah. you can watch stuff on YouTube, but the access to the All-22 is going to be tough. And I think that you and I are lucky enough that We've been doing this for long enough where we can watch college all 22 film. There are people that can yeah. help us do it or we can seek it out. And I think that's a huge part. There is a great yearly tradition, though, where like I'll hit up like all my buddies. Like, I'll hit up Nate. I'll hit up like Derek Class and football status guys. And I'll be like, yo, does anybody have Carson Strong, Nevada against San Diego State? I was like, I need it. I got to watch it. I can't freaking find it anywhere. And you're just like like a beggar just pedaling around. Like you need this one specific thing, trying to find some random dude from the Mount West who has it. It's very absurd. I, I've, I've certainly done my share of that. And it's never fun. You never feel good. Whenever that like your team hand. drafts a small school guy, you're like, Frick, this is going to take up so much time. Then, then you get into another barrier, right? You, I can watch the all 22, but like you mentioned, it is very different than what a general manager or especially a coach would do when they're watching players. Mm-hmm. So there are certain services, telemetry being one of them. And there are others where you can watch, you can get, make it as granular as you want. It's okay? so obnoxious. I want to watch every snap that Traylon Burks had in the slot on third and seven to nine. Mm-hmm. And an NFL coach can just cue that up in eight seconds and just watch all of those in a row if he wants to. There are certain services we can use that we have access to. Uh, game situation you, you can do yeah. some of that when it was interlocked with game pass that we were able to use true media does a great job of that like last year i if i wanted to i could queue up every time the titans were in 12 personnel and ran a play action pass on first and 10 and the throw was more than eight air yards worth noting right now up. that when robert says we have true media he means he alone has true media and i resent <laughs> him greatly for it Anyway, so there are certain layers to this. So I think that, like Ben said, that's a great starting point, but there are definitely barriers that you run into. And I would do terrible, terrible things for like a PFF ultimate login or a telemetry login or whatever you want to give me. If you want to give it to me, if you're out there and you have one, my email is in my Twitter bio. Just just point me at the crime I need to do. That's all. (laughs) I have no, no further questions. All right. Let's get to our next voicemail here. Hey, guys. Uh... My name's Mike, a uh, big fan of Benjamin Solak, longtime listener since the days of the Kiss and Solak show and Locked On NFL Draft. Uh, and so it is with great pride and honor I ask, Benjamin, how are you, brother? 
And also, what does Jalen Hurts have to show this year to prove to the Eagles and to you that he is the guy moving forward? All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. This is the Eagles segment of the show. I made people wait. We have a couple Eagles voicemails here in a row. This is going to be a question that we ask a million times between now and the season and then during the season. What benchmarks, what hurdles do we need to see Jalen Hurts jump over for this to be proven true? I think there are a lot of different things to take into consideration here. But just on the basic level, how would you answer that question? I want a playoff defense to be scared of him. Because I will. That's a great I, answer. Yeah. Like that. That's the thing that's is, a great is great answer. Up until that Bucks game, I was like, ah, oh, maybe. And then I watched a playoff defense not care about him at all. Just know, like, ah, your your college offense was cute. We aren't afraid of you throwing the football, and we're not gonna treat you like you can. And that's a, a huge. I cannot emphasize how massive an impetus that game was to the AJ Brown acquisition. Because the Eagles very easily could have spent another first-round pick on another rookie receiver. But they needed a guy that they know can beat NFL corner ones right now. Because they need to figure out if Jalen Hurts can make those throws in time over the middle of the field where he doesn't like to throw right now. And if they can get a big-boy NFL passing offense, passing designs onto the field by the playoffs next year. Because if they can't, and even like in the regular season, when they play some expected playoff defense, they play some top 10 by DVOA defense, whatever benchmark you want, they they now, you now emphatically have the weapons in Devontae Smith, Dallas Goddard, and A.J. Brown to say to Jalen Hurts, you should be able to throw the ball against this team. They, they should not be able to put nine in the box against us right now. And even if we're still beating them because of your running ability, that's okay. But when they tell you, as the Bucks did, putting all their safeties eight yards back, blitzing on every godforsaken snap, that we do not care about you throwing the football on us. You have to punish them. You have to be able to make them pay. Otherwise, you are so one-dimensional that this is just simply not going to work. And I don't want that for Hurts. And he has improved as a passer. And each year he's been in the league. Each year in college, he was improving as a passer. He's been an unbelievable example of, of personal work ethic and growth. But the rubber's going to meet the road here in terms of the Eagles' Uh, team building timeline and, and, and what they're looking to do getting back into the playoffs. He has to face playoff defenses this year and beat them, be enough of a passer to either force them out of run beating looks or to actually beat them over the top. What specifics with his game? Mm-hmm. Just like what concepts need to be available? Where does he need to just show signs of improvement? Like actual things on the field. It's like, all right, in this situation, this is what I need to see. Right. So uh, I think a way that we would describe a, co- a collegiate passing offense is that it's very it's very much like a dichotomous key. It's very binary. So you're going to have the wide side of the field, right? Which obviously in college is wider, which helps you out. It's why it's a kind of college side offense. We have the wide side of the field. We're going to put three receivers over there. And then we're just going to give you some if-then statements. Pre-snap. If the safety is, is 10 yards off of number three and then, you know, like that innermost receiver and, you know, the, the, the slot isn't down over him, we're just going to throw the bubble. We're going to throw the bubble right now. And the reason the colleges do that is because it takes post-snap processing out of their quarterback's hands and they say, all right, if we're going to throw the bubble against this luck and that safety has to come down from 10 yards, we're going to pick up four yards. And that is us staying on schedule, moving the ball the way we need to move it, getting to advantageous down and distances. That's what they would give Hurts last year. And then, all right, you know, uh, number two receiver is going to run the sit route. And you can throw that if the number one receiver doesn't have one-on-one coverage on, on the on the, on the the nine route, on the ball going down the field. Everything is to half of the field, and it's all if-then, right? It's just kind of binary. Like, you know, talk about uh, progression reads, like one to two to three. It's a little bit like that, where it's just 
make these decisions on this tree. And if nothing happens, if it doesn't uncover the way you want, drop your eyes, tuck the ball and get us out of a sack. Don't throw a pick. Don't take a sack. Run, go run, get us six yards sick. An NFL quarterback sees that he doesn't have to read it as if thens. He just reads it in flow. It just all the information, one to two to three happens at the same time. Just sees the spacing, sees the defenders move and can process it quickly such that if it's not open, he resets his feet and finds the backside dig, right? And, and we as film heads can lionize the backside dig. We can get a little bit obsessed with it, right? We're like, oh, how beautiful the backside dig. But in reality, it is the route that punishes defenses for taking away the simple stuff, for taking away the first read and selling out for that. Because when defenses do not fear you in progression, they do not fear you late in the down, they do not fear you resetting your feet in the pocket and throwing intermediate to deep, right? Still explosive play late in the pocket. They do not care about the backside dick because that is the most traditional. I've gone through my strong side reads. Let me get to the weak side route. Hertz does not have the backside dig at this time. They run vertical routes on the outside. They run outbreakers into the outside. They do not run seams. They do not run in-breaking routes. If they do, he'll throw them at, like, he'll throw wide cross when he knows he has it in his first read, but he will not get there late in the progression. He does not throw well over the middle of the field. He does not manage the pocket well enough. He doesn't process fast enough. If he can start accessing the backside dig in any combination of processing speed improving, pocket management improving, just pre-snap recognition improving, that like whatever trade it is that gets him there. If he can start accessing that, all of a sudden he's accessing a third of the field he was not previously throwing the ball to, and now this starts to look like an NFL passing offense because the designs they ran last year were inherently collegiate, and that was cool against the Washington football team in week 14. Then you ran into Todd Bowles, and Todd Bowles said, this is really cute, guys, but you're going to have to go home now, and he did that for four quarters. Donnie from Chicago asked a question about building around a Russian quarterback and how it kind of does raise your floor as an offense. But mm-hmm. ultimately, where is that going to bring you? What sort of ceiling do you run into? What you just said about right. scaring a playoff defense, I think that answers that question. The most important thing you can say about a Russian quarterback is that everybody always talks about the ceiling. It's really about the floor. What do yep. Russian quarterbacks do? They get you out of bad plays. It should be a sack, and it's not because he escaped. It should be a throwaway, and it's not because he picked up five yards. They raise your floor. It's when they aren't developed enough as a passer. They're so used to breaking the pocket, scrambling, and just getting that five-yard gain that they then also lower your ceiling. And now you're just stuck somewhere in the middle. Which is really interesting because what you just said about the backside dig, right? And that that is a, a solving a problem. Let's say what is available to you based on the schematics of the play on the front side. That no long, That isn't there. The backside dig is the ceiling raising solution to that answer scrambling is the yes. floor raising ceiling to that right. answer so Stafford versus Jalen Hurts like all right where how is Jalen Hurts different than Kirk Cousins Kirk Cousins is like just baseline quarterback play yes the, the holy line is, of Kirk Cousins the ceiling is raised because Matthew Stafford can hit that backside dig the floor is raised but as relates to Kirk Cousins because Jalen Hurts can run mm-hmm. like that is the difference between those two versions of solving the same problem absolutely and so, and that's where I think when you try to understand what's going on with the Cardinals and Kyler Murray, which I know I said I don't want to get too much into the Cardinals because that'll never shut up, but there's a lot going on there. One of the things that's going on there is you look at Kyler Murray's passing distributions, you look at the way he manages the pocket, and you go, I don't know, I don't know how much we want to live in this world. We've seen what happened with Russ, and we're talking about short quarterbacks now a little bit, which is another factor in this. Quarterback height is back, baby. But the, we we have seen what this world looks like. 
And either you got to be an elite deep ball passer, Russell Wilson, or it is not super pretty. And so I think that's where you get some of this, this hesitance from not just the Eagles with Hertz, but also the Cardinals with Kyler. All right. One more voicemail Hill, very quickly about the Eagles. And then we're going to get out of here. Hey, Robert. Um, since Ben is on the, the pod today, I figured I would ask an Eagles question. So Ben, first of all, go birds. Second, I want to know what is the optimistic, pessimistic, and realistic projection for the Eagles secondary specifically this year? I like a lot of what they did in the front seven, but as per usual, Howie Roseman doesn't believe that uh, corners and safeties are real football players, apparently. And I'd love to know if that's as big a concern for other Eagles people as it is for me. Thanks. Love the show. Take care. Optimistic, realistic, pessimistic is great. I, I think I think I might steal that, honestly. Yeah. That's really good. Good luck getting optimistic out of me for this group. Um, <laughs> I realize I didn't answer like, Go Birds. Everything is delicious for the first Eagles guy, for the Kiss and Solak listener. But, uh, I mean, Robert, like, you cover the NFL. How many Eagles corners can you name on this roster? <laughs> Do you want to go? You can pass. It's an unfair question. I mean, I can name at least two, right? I can name Avante Maddox and, and Darius Slay. I... Is Sidney Jones still on the roster? Nope, he's with Seahawks. <laughs> right, it's not pretty. Uh, we traded for Tay Gowan last year. Big Tay Gowan guy. Carrie Vincent, seventh round pick. Zach McPherson, fourth round pick. One of these guys has to start. It's because it's not like, oh, they're bad at corner, but at least they I have- feel better about that, that it's Tay McGowan and Zach McPherson. Yes. I was going to be a little bit embarrassed, but I don't think I should be. Right, exactly. That's the thing is it's like, oh, yeah, they're all, there is literally nobody here. And it's not like, oh, they have three safeties they're going to play because their safeties are- Anthony Harris, Marcus Epson, Kayvon Wallace. It's the worst secondary in the league. And it looked exactly like this before free agency, Robert, not before the draft, before free agency. <laughs> so optimistic. They're like average. Uh, I think Kayvon can be a good or they player. Or they James Bradbury. That's, <laughs> that's yeah, optimistic. Sign James Bradbury. Um, but I think they could be average. Um, Maddox works for this scheme, even despite his limitations. He's got short arms, doesn't really play in the ball super well, but he does work for the scheme. He is physical. He can tackle. He's quick as a wink. Uh, I think Kayvon can be a good player for them too. He's just dealt with a lot of health problems because he's such a physical safety. So if he gets lucky this year and stays healthy, I think that he can be a starter for them and he can be like a good impact run defending guy. So sure, they're an average secondary. Pessimistic is, do you remember when they set when Justin Herbert and Derek Carr both completed over 90% of their passes against them. And that was the first time in NFL history that that ever happened. Yeah. Pessimistic is that keeps happening because they're just playing zone with a bunch of below average defensive backs on the field. And it turns out NFL quarterbacks have seen a lot of zone coverage in their day and do not have problems taking check downs and just letting their cadre of elite athletes, pass catchers at running back tight end and slot receiver, just go for 31 for 35 and 300 yards. That's pessimistic. And then realistic is, yeah, they uh, they continue to beat the bad teams as they did with Jim Schwartz and as they've done under uh, John Gannon. They beat the bad teams by pass rushing the ever-living daylights out of them with a great front four. And then anytime they run into a smart offensive coordinator, a smart quarterback, or a really good line, they give up 30 points. Because one of those three is going to figure out, hey, if we can just block the line for like three seconds, we're going to get pretty much whatever we want whenever we want it. So this team desperately needs needs James Bradbury, but even that's not enough. They need that. They need an actual impact safety. They probably need to. Um, they did a lot right on defense. Jordan Davis and Kobe Dean are both critical ads, but the, the secondary negligence did continue for another year, and that really sucks. 
That's all we got. We've been going for 90 minutes, but I wanted you to wanted you to let loose about those two Eagles questions. And um, it is always extremely fun to talk football with you. I think last time I was on, we got into like Bears insanity at the end. So it was only appropriate that, that this time around we did Eagles insanity to finish. I'm just ignoring the Bears for the next like three months of my life. It's self-care. It's May. I don't need to do this. Why? What value is there? As I say that, and we're going to talk about the rookie quarterbacks here very soon on the athletic football show from last year, last year's rookie quarterbacks. So remember that Steelers game for Justin Fields? It's a good game, brother. It was was a wonderful moment. I was buzzing. I was buzzing. (laughs) So we're going to do a lot of fun stuff later on this week. We're going to have a couple Shows our normal Thursday, Friday podcasts, and then, you know, really kind of rolling out what our off-season coverage is going to be here. So be on the lookout for shows on Thursday and Friday this week. Really fun stuff headed your way. Benjamin, thank you very much for the time, my friend. That was fun. Of course, man. Like I said, always a blast. And thank you guys for the questions. We do this because you guys ask great questions. With that in mind, we are recording next next week's mailbag a little bit early because I am going on vacation starting on Saturday. So we're going to bank a couple things. Please, if you would, send your questions in for me and Deontay Lee, who I'm recording with on Friday. Take advantage of Deontay's knowledge when it comes to defensive football stuff. If you want a nerdy defensive football question, Deontay is here for you. So, athleticfootballshow at gmail.com. Please get your questions in, let's say 5 p.m. Eastern on Thursday is when we will need the deadline for those because we're going to be recording early on Friday. It's 5 p.m. Eastern by Thursday, athleticfootballshow at gmail.com. Me and Deontay, send those in. We will be back on Thursday with me and Nate and Lindsay. Until then, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Please subscribe to The Athletic. Theathletic.com slash football show is where you can read all the stuff that all of the wonderful people on here are writing consistently please go get that if you do not i know it's the off season but we got tons of great stuff coming all the time benjamin where can people check out your stuff yeah on twitter at benjamin solak uh ringer nfl show ringer nfl draft show wherever you do podcasting and yeah the ringer nfl is where all the written stuff's gonna be where i don't know what we're writing about this summer but we'll write something and it'll be good all right guys thank you very much we'll talk to you soon this was the athletic football show